Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week is a little bit different. The Long Read is, like everything else in New Zealand, locked down. If I sound a little different, it's because I'm talking to you from an awesome duvet fort in my son's bedroom that I've commandeered to be our studio. This week's story was, until Tuesday, the story of the week. It's called After the Tampa. It's the story of Afghan refugee Abbas Nazari, and it marks the return of my namesake nemesis, Mike White. Mike, who for lockdown reasons can't talk to us this week, wrote this story based on a book, written and just released by Abbas, about his life. You might recall 20 years ago, just after the 9-11 terror attacks, a Norwegian container ship called the Tampa rescued hundreds of refugees from a stricken boat in the Indian Ocean. Something of a diplomatic crisis followed. Australia, the nearest country, refused to take the refugees, and the ship sort of sailed aimlessly around the Indian Ocean for a while. Finally, New Zealand agreed to take some of the refugees, and among them were the Nazari family. So, this week, as Afghanistan sadly succumbs once more to Taliban rule, here, read by me, is the uplifting story of Abbas Nazari. When Abbas Nazari goes to bed tonight, sleep will elude him. His bed will sway. He will recall the scent of salt and summer wind and uncertainty. He will be back at sea, back where he was exactly 20 years ago. That night, he'd been woken by his parents, hustled from a dormitory in Jakarta onto a bus and driven to Indonesia's coast. In the darkness, the seven-year-old from the mountains of Afghanistan touched the sea for the first time in his life. Rocking in the shallows and shadows was a 20-metre-long wooden boat, its flanks worn, its deck crowded. This was what the family had paid a fortune for, a place on the Palapa, a converted fishing boat that would provide them with passage to Australia and a new life. For months, they'd made the journey from their village, Sungjoy, high in the Hindu Kush, where they slept on the roof of their mud-brick house in summer to stay cool and shoveled snow from it in winter. When Taliban troops and their ascetic ideology crept closer and closer, Abbas's father, Abdul, made the impossible decision to flee. He sold the truck he used for his haulage business, boarded up their house, and bribed his family's way across the border to Pakistan by handing over his wedding ring and watch when a Taliban commander demanded them. From there, forged visas and complicit immigration officials helped them reach Indonesia. And now, here they were, at the edge of the ocean, the beginning of their journey's final leg, beside the Palapa's porous planks, wondering if they should climb aboard. They'd imagined something far bigger. They thought their money would have secured something much safer. The family stood on the beach, 
balancing their options. Abbas's mother, Goldista, told her husband she couldn't face putting her children at risk on such a boat. But Abdul replied that they'd spent all their savings and to turn back now would be to stare at a life begging on Jakarta's streets. Have faith, he said. We've made it this far. Every step of their journey had been a throw of the dice. Every decision and border and smuggled truck ride, a risk. Did you stay and accept the likelihood of continued misery? Or leave and chase a sliver of hope? Once at sea, it seemed the family's luck had run out. After 15 hours, the Palapa's engine began faltering. After 24 hours, it gasped one last time and died. Without a radio, the boat was adrift and alone, terribly overloaded with 438 people, mainly Afghans, including 43 children. On the evening of the third day, a storm hit, and the Palapa began disintegrating. Holes appeared in the hull, and water roared in. Prayers for deliverance turned to cries for death to be swift, to free them from their suffering, and hopes their bodies would be washed ashore in order to be buried. When you hear your parents crying and wailing, remembers Abbas, when you see that cold desperation cloaking people's faces, I think even a little child can understand that. I certainly understood it, that we were about to die. But the boat and passengers survived the night, and the next day, the Palapa was spotted by Australian pilots who issued a distress call to nearby ships. Answering the request was Captain Arne Rinnen, in charge of the Norwegian container ship, the Tampa. By the time he located the Palapa, its hull was groaning and splintering. Moments after the last of its passengers clambered aboard the Tampa, it broke up, sinking in the giant ship's wake. What followed captured the world's attention as Australia refused to allow the ship to dock at nearby Christmas Island, demanding it take asylum seekers back to Indonesia and threatening Rinan with jail if he didn't. In a decision defying international obligations and human rights, Australia's government kept the refugees sweltering on the Tampa's foredeck for a week, sending commandos aboard to hold the asylum seekers at gunpoint, determined to prevent a precedent for any who might attempt to follow them. Eventually, Australia accepted New Zealand's offer to take all families and boys on their own, more than 130 people in total. The remaining men were detained in a hastily built encampment on Nauru under the Australian government's Pacific Solution, where they remained for more than three years. Abbas's family of seven arrived in New Zealand on September 28, 2001, six months since escaping Sunjoy and the same day American troops invaded Afghanistan following the 9-11 attacks. 
After two months at Mangari Refugee Resettlement Centre, the family flew to Christchurch, were picked up from the airport, turned into Ballantyne Ave in Rickerton, and pulled into the drive of a simple state house with a white picket fence, cream weatherboards, lush lawn, and brick chimney. And a blue front door, which Abbas pushed open and walked through into a new life in New Zealand. Abbas walked out the back door and into a shed behind the house, filled with books. Over the years that followed, he read nearly all of them. Despite only learning the alphabet at Mangari, he soon topped his primary and intermediate school classes. In his first week at Burnside High School, he entered the New Zealand Vegemite Spelling Bee, coming second in the Canterbury competition, he slipped on soliloquy, and third in the national finals, where he missed the second T in silhouetted. To this day, Abbas recalls, Vegemite tastes of bitter defeat. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. Four doors down from the Nazaris in Ballantyne Ave were the Mwangas, and Abbas and his brothers quickly became mates with Richie, now an all-black. Mwanga remembers them all playing touch rugby, barefooted, down the cul-de-sac. Language barriers never stood in the way of fun. The thing that amazes me about Abbas and his family, Mwanga says, was when they got to Christchurch, it took Abbas probably two years before he spoke better English than me, and was five times smarter than me. And you could see the way he applied himself. Abbas was always at the library, reading. Him and his family, they were all on a mission when they landed. Moanga says Abbas was a decent rugby player, though they didn't face each other after primary school. Thankfully, the All Black First Five says, because he could put me on my backside. He's a big boy. You see what he's been through. I think he's scared of nothing. Abbas played first 15 rugby, trialled for Canterbury representative teams, and became a devoted Crusaders fan. He studied international relations at Canterbury University, and every holiday would work picking berries or in real estate to help pay his way. For a while, he thought about joining the armed forces, but was eventually satisfied with helping the student volunteer army. After university, Abbas became a policy analyst at Treasury, drove Ubers at night, worked weekends at the family business, and bought a central Wellington apartment. In 2019, he won a Fulbright scholarship to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Three months ago, he graduated with a Master's in Security Studies. From Afghanistan to Aotearoa, from the middle of the Indian Ocean 
to the stage in America's capital. From a world where his future looked hopeless to a future where the world lies before him. It's a remarkable story, and one that's been shaped by his father, who refused to see himself as a victim, despite being forced from his homeland, losing every possession he had when the Palapa sank, and having to rely on the goodwill of strangers to survive. He said, look, we can either continue to say we've been aggrieved and victimised and persecuted, recalls Abbas, or we could say this is the beginning of a new opportunity, and opportunities are going to come thick and fast, and you've got to be ready. That's something that stayed with me, and all of us, very, very strongly. Richie Moanga says it wasn't until after they'd grown up that he fully understood what Abbas and his family had been through. We had humble beginnings, Moanga says, but mine was nothing compared to what he went through and some of the things he saw as a kid. No one should have to go through that. But the strength and courage his family showed, fleeing from their home, and the month on that ship, it just amazes me what that family has done, all of them. They're so successful in whatever path they've chosen. Moanga has stayed friends with Abbas, and the two barefooted boys from Ballantyne Ave have achieved remarkable things. But he says Abbas has always remained humble, always stayed kind. It's inspiring, he says, but it's not surprising, because that's the Abbas we all knew growing up. He wouldn't hesitate to let me copy his homework at primary school, which I did a couple of times. Above all, he's just a great human. I've got a daughter now and a son on the way. And Abbas is one of those people you meet and you wish your son could be like him. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevit. Abbas realises his story, told in his just-released book, After the Tamper, is full of what-ifs. What if they hadn't got on board the Palapa? What if Ane Rinan hadn't rescued them or defied orders to return the refugees to Indonesia? What if they'd delayed their journey by a week and been one of the 353 victims of another refugee boat that sank in a storm near where Abbas was rescued? It could have turned on a dime or flip of a coin, Abbas says. 
decisions we made or didn't make or had made for us along the way. So I consider myself incredibly, incredibly fortunate to be here. So do his parents. Looking back on the struggle of our journey, says Goldestar, now 59, it was a very, very difficult time. But looking where we are now, it was definitely worth the struggle. Having come from a village with no electricity, with neither of them having had a formal education, seeing the success of their children has made them proud beyond words. Abbas says other Tampa refugees, nearly all of whom remain in New Zealand, have done fantastically in their new home. I'm very mindful that I get put up as the poster child of refugee success, he says, and there's this expectation that, oh my God, all of them are going to be like that. But Abbas stresses not everyone can be, or wishes to be, a Fulbright scholar, and he doesn't want to be the measuring stick for achievement. Success, in his eyes, takes countless forms, from trades to sport to education to the family business. Success is surviving and contributing. And there will always be some who don't make the massive transition after being a refugee, he says, with all the emotional and psychological baggage that arrives with them at the airport. But do you want to handpick the best of the best from the refugee camps, he says? Or do you give an invite to a couple of hundred every year and say, look man, this is New Zealand, make the most of it? Of course, even though Abbas left Afghanistan as a boy, it's still half of him. He still lives in two countries, the hyphenated character of any immigrant. I think of it as two houses, he says, separated by a fence, and you end up standing on a fence line the whole time, with a view of both homes and both front lawns, between two worlds. For some, that dislocation is severe. One Tampa family gained their New Zealand citizenship, then decided to move back to Afghanistan. Within a year, they had returned to New Zealand. Abbas says it was a reminder. As hard as it might be to live in New Zealand as a refugee, it's a million times better than dealing with the realities of life on the ground in Kabul. For his own parents, the transition to a new country where they had no language, community or financial base led to inevitable homesickness. But they understood the beginning of a new chapter meant the end of another one, Abbas says. When Abbas was 18, he made his first trip back to Afghanistan. Oh man, I remember that so well. Feeling like a bloody foreigner because I was wearing jeans and Chuck Taylors and everyone else was wearing their traditional Afghan clothes and feeling like, what the hell have I done here? But then the guy stamps my passport and he says, Bawatan kosh amadid bera. Welcome home, brother. And I almost felt tears welling up in my eyes. Abbas watches with horror and fear what's happening in Afghanistan now, as the Taliban retake control of the country. His village of Sungjoy again comes under threat, and locals pick up guns and form militias to defy them. It's almost like we've come full circle, he says, and history is repeating itself. And it makes me incredibly angry, and makes me think, what the hell was the last 20 years for? It's almost like we've not moved one inch forward, 
and it fills me with trepidation about the number of folks that, like our family but 20 years later, are going to be looking for an exit. I could easily shut off and just not worry about it and say, it's part of my past. I don't really want to think about what's happening. That's a very tempting thought. Why don't I just unfollow all these news channels and forget it? But the longer I stay in New Zealand, the more the connection to Afghanistan grows. Eventually, Abbas, who's now 27, imagines he'll play some part in rebuilding the country of his birth. One day, that might mean working there. But in the meantime, he'd like to do something practical, raising money to support a thousand families displaced by the Taliban to feed them through winter. The links with Afghanistan will naturally weaken as the next generation of Tampa descendants, born in New Zealand, like Abbas's six nieces and nephews, grow up completely Kiwi, in a world far away from war. I want them not to have to deal with the bullshit we had to deal with, Abbas says, because that's progress. There's no point in passing on to them the scar of what we went through. When the Palapa sank, the Nazari family lost their last precious possessions. A Quran that sat on a lintel in their Sungjoy home, and a white scarf Goldestar wore on her wedding day. But when Abbas's father made his first journey back to Afghanistan six years after arriving in New Zealand, he retrieved other small mementos of their life in Sungjoy. And he also replaced the watch and wedding ring he'd given up to bribe his way out of the country. The lapis lazuli stone on his finger is a constant reminder of where he came from and what he went through to get here. There's never a day goes by that I don't think about the difference between then and now, says Abdul. And if there's one thing I want people to know, it's that we're eternally grateful for the last 20 years and incredibly happy to be here. Now, back in New Zealand, Abbas isn't sure what comes next. Every step in his life has been incredible, he says. He remembers what Abdul said as they stood beside the Palapa that dark morning, debating whether to board or turn back. Have faith, his father told the family. We've made it this far. And that's a maxim Abbas has lived by and holds close as he decides where his life will go now. I have no idea what's next, he says but we've made it this far. That was After the Tampa on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Mike White, but read somewhat confusingly by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell and produced by me. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dunning. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.